I was not going to get tied down with a baby. I didn't have a clue about a baby. I had never babysat. And I didn't know anything about babies. And a few years later, when I did have babies, I still didn't know anything about them. It's the TMI Project Podcast, a series of stories about the too much information parts of ourselves we usually leave out because we're too ashamed or embarrassed. I'm your host, Eva Tenuto, and this is Season 3, Stories for Choice. Before we get started, just want to let you know that as the TMI implies, some content might be too much information for some listeners. And remember, your support keeps our content free and accessible to everyone who wants to listen. So if you like what you hear and you're able to chip in, thank you. You can give what you can at tmiproject.org. Either way, we're so glad you're listening. Let's dive in. So I think, and we all thought, uh, very important to tell younger people what it was like before Roe and Wade and having an illegal abortion. It was definitely illegal (laughs) and scary. Sometimes a topic is so taboo, people can go for decades without giving voice to their experience. That's exactly what happened to today's two featured storytellers until they took a TMI Project workshop. Betty was the first woman to write and share about her experience surviving an illegal abortion in the 1950s. After she shared, Morka admitted that she too had an illegal abortion in the 1960s. Diana, Jenna, and Helen chimed in with the now infamous two words, Me Too. For the rest of the weekend, they shared details they each thought were unique to their own experience, like being blindfolded on the way to the procedure or having to leave $500 in cash on the back of the toilet in the bathroom, only to find out that the others went through the exact same thing. As I watched these five women rise up from isolation and shame to connection, strength, and shared community, it made me realize something that seems so obvious now. When we are silenced by shame, we think we are unique, that our experience is solitary. It's only through sharing that we find our commonalities and as a result, power in numbers. This culture of silence is by design and all of us at TMI Project are working to change that. Betty, Morka, Diana, Jenna, and Helen read their stories together in a piece we called The Lucky Ones. They knew no matter how challenging their experience had been, they were lucky to have survived. But they had already been through enough alone, and we wanted them to be able to share their stories together. It's 1966, and I'm 19 years old. 1956, and 19 years old. 1967, I'm 19. It's 1968, and I'm 16. 1969, and I'm 22 years old. I have no recollection of how I got to LaGuardia Airport, but I'm here and about to fly to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Baltimore, Maryland. New Jersey. West side of Chicago. Greenwich Village. There's a link to the video of the lucky ones in the show notes, but for the purposes of clarity for the podcast, Betty and Morka recorded their stories individually and we will share those with you today. These are the only two stories in the season that are not performed in front of a live audience, but they remain just as powerful as they were on stage. Stay tuned after the story to hear where Betty and Morka are today. Here's Betty. 
We become sexually active in a world in which penicillin protects us from the scourge of syphilis and AIDS is not yet heard of. In that sliver of time of our sexual awakening, there are few consequences. We enjoy more freedom than women in our culture have had in the past. We choose our partners randomly. The worst that can happen is a nasty case of crab lice. Or, of course, the very worst. You could get pregnant. Armed with magical thinking and dumb luck, I believe I'm too skinny, too anemic, have a uterus too small or tilted to get pregnant. I'm unable to insert the diaphragm I've gotten from Planned Parenthood, and I'm too embarrassed to make another appointment and get help. Following college, my hometown radio station hires me to host a disc jockey show. I have total choice of what to say on air and what records I spin as long as I read the commercials enthusiastically. The truth is, I don't actually spin the records. My sidekick, Charlie, operates the microphones and the turntables I'm not allowed to touch because I'm female. I don't object because I'm clueless. I don't see anything wrong with having a man run the board for me. Although I think of myself as progressive, I'm woefully unaware of the women's movement. In 1956, I followed my dream to live in New York City, intent on becoming an actor. I become a part of a group of struggling performers, artists, writers, and musicians who hang out at in the gaslight on McDougal Street and the Figaro on Bleecker. The village gate is a home base. My boyfriend Jack is the bartender. When I begin to date Jack, I become pregnant right away. Jack has been celibate for several years, which may have increased his potency. Jack's super potent post-celibacy sperm has overcome my magic thinking. I miss my period. Upon the news of my condition, my primary physician, Dr. C, places me in the hands of his nurse, who connects me with an abortion provider, a gynecologist who makes a living renovating apartments, having lost his medical license for performing abortions. Jack, a gentleman and the only man in our crowd with a regular job, foots the bill. $500. The procedure is scheduled to take place in my fourth floor Greenwich Village walk-up. My friend Claudette, a worldly young woman toughened by a childhood spent in Nazi-occupied France during World War II, promises to be with me. Disheveled from having climbed the three flights to my door, the doctor, a small, earnest-looking man, at first observes the apartment with the eyes of a professional contractor, offers a few suggestions on useful renovations, and unpacks his physician's bag. My legs and butt are placed in a mesh harness because there are no stirrups on the green and tan enameled kitchen table where I am lying. There is no anesthesia. I experience unspeakable pain as the doctor clears my uterus. 
Claudette is by my side and holds my hand through it all. For weeks following the procedure, I bleed and feel faint. Eventually, through good luck and good health, I heal. Unfortunately, another few dates with Jack and his super sperm gets me again. I appeal to the same abortion provider who instructs me to meet not at my apartment, but at an apartment in one of the many high-rise complexes in Queens. My friend Lorraine drives me through the Midtown Tunnel. Because my instructions are to arrive unaccompanied, Lorraine waits outside in the car as I take the elevator to the sixth floor. I'm about to press the buzzer at the designated apartment when a door on the other side of the hall opens slightly. The abortionist pokes his head out and calls to me urgently in a hushed voice. Fearfully, I enter the apartment and climb on the table. When it's all over, Lorraine drives me back to West 10th Street, and I break up with my hyper-potent boyfriend. We caught up with Betty recently, and here's what she had to say about the experience of sharing her story. It's important for us to, to tell our stories, to bring this out of the darkness, so that women know that it's not unusual to get pregnant and, and want to have an abortion. It was such a crime and such a shame and such a, a shanda. And it's not. It's very ordinary. People, women have been doing it from, from the beginning of time. And it's important to bring it out of the shadows. It's important that women know they have support. And right now, with the Supreme Court, bearing down on that right, I think it's really important that it, that it be public, that people know. One of the most uh, uh, touching performances we did was at Bard College, and we saw those young women and, who were visually being struck by what we were saying. They had no clue. They didn't know. And now, here's Morka. I was 19 years old in the fall of 1966 when my friend Barbara and I drove my two-tone 1956 Chevrolet from Nyack, New York to Baltimore, Maryland, where I was to have an illegal abortion. One evening, a few weeks before the Baltimore adventure, I had returned from the college that I was attending, pulled into my driveway, parked, and stepped out of the car. I was loaded with books and bags and papers. Suddenly, Bo, my ex-boyfriend, appeared from out of the darkness. I had recently broken up with him, and he was angry. He grabbed my arm. The books and papers went flying. I thought he was going to kill me. But instead, he ripped my clothes off and raped me on the hood of my car. Before he got into his car and drove away, he slapped me across the face. I never saw him again. I slid off the car and fell into the dry brown leaves. 
I don't know how long I lay there, but finally I forced myself up and put on my ripped clothes. With leaves still in my hair and my face streaked with tears and dirt, I slowly walked up the apartment steps where I lived with my father. He greeted me when I walked through the door and asked me in Russian how I was doing. He never noticed my condition. He wasn't looking. It didn't take long before I found out that I was pregnant. After drinking quinine water and vast amounts of alcohol and failed attempts to abort, I managed to obtain $500 from a friend for an abortion. Barbara and I scraped up the rest of the money for a hotel room and gas. There was not much left for food, a minor consideration. I had the instructions memorized. I was to go to a certain Howard Johnson Motor Lodge in Baltimore. I was to check in, get a room, and wait for a taxi that would pick me up at a specified time. I was instructed to be alone. It was dark when Barbara and I arrived at the hotel. We settled in our room. I looked out the window and noticed a taxi waiting at the entrance. It was time to go. Barbara and I hugged, and I walked alone down the hall, through the lobby, and climbed into the taxi. I felt like I was moving in slow motion. My blinders were on. I was in deep denial of the danger that awaited me. My thoughts were on the necessity of going through with it to get it done and move on. The cab driver told me to lie face down in the car's back seat and not to get up. I did as I was told. I felt the taxi winding around curves and going uphill. About 20 minutes later, we stopped in front of a dark house. The driver told me to go in. I was greeted by a woman who immediately asked me for the money. She took the envelope of cash and told me to go into a room, take my clothes off, and put on an orange paper dress that I would find on the bed and wait. As I stepped into the room, I noticed a woman lying on her side on another bed in one corner. She was groaning. We didn't speak. I didn't want to know. Soon I walked into a very bright room and was told to lie down on the cold metal flat bed in the middle of the room and put my feet into the stirrups. My legs began to tremble. The doctor and nurse were wearing sunglasses. The operation began. The doctor told me that there would be cramping, but I was not given anything for pain. As the pain intensified, tears rolled down my cheeks. The procedure lasted 15 minutes, but felt like an eternity. And then it was over. The doctor asked me if I wanted to see the fetus, and I said no. I was led back into the original room. The woman was gone. I was told to lie down, and in a while, they would come for me. It was in this quiet moment that I realized what just happened. I could bleed to death. I could get an infection. Would I see Barbara again? Would I make it home? I lay on the bed and sobbed.
Shortly, the nurse came back and I was given some pills for the bleeding and some menstrual pads. I got dressed and slowly and painfully walked out of the house and into the waiting taxi. Again, I was told to lie face down on the back seat. Again, I did as I was told. Finally, the taxi dropped me off at the Howard Johnson's. Slowly, I walked into the lobby and down the hall where Barbara came rushing towards me. We hugged and we cried, tears of relief. The next morning, I wasn't bleeding too badly. My angels were working overtime. I was going to make it. Some women die. I was the lucky one. I talked to Morka recently and asked her about the experience of sharing her story, and this is what Morka had to say. This story was very difficult. I had anxiety over it, mostly because I had to relive it. Not just the abortion, but how it happened, how, how I got pregnant. We were actually very surprised that many people didn't realize that it was illegal. You know, they just took for granted that it's, you can have an abortion now anywhere. The surprise was how many people really didn't cognitively know that abortion was once illegal. And even if they did know, I don't think it kind of, you know, sinks in. Um, what, what dangers were involved? So th- by telling the story, it was out there black and white. I think it's, uh, it's of utmost importance to keep it fresh in people's minds that do not take anything for granted, that rights can be taken away. We've already witnessed it in certain states. It's very, very scary. I would go to Texas to tell my story. Absolutely. A very special thanks to Morka, Betty, and the other women who shared their stories in the group reading The Lucky Ones. Diana, Jenna, and Helen, thank you. Our hope is your stories will inspire a new generation of activists so no one ever has to face the reality of illegal abortion again. If you're listening and you want to get involved in the movement, download our listening and discussion guide today to find some direct actions you can take right now. Visit tmiproject.org backslash podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode when Antoinette will share a more lighthearted story about a mishap with a diaphragm and trying her best to be a sex-positive role model for her daughter. You don't want to miss it. I'm Eva Tenuto. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. TMI Project is available to offer true storytelling workshops and performances for your school or workplace. This episode of Season 3 of the TMI Project podcast, Stories for Choice, was produced in partnership with Radio Kingston. It was written by me and edited, produced, and mixed by Daisha Clay. Our theme song is Secrets by Edison Woods. Our operations and programs manager is Blake File. Our marketing and digital coordinator is Laura Marie Ruoco. 
Our administrative assistant is Elijah Jackson. Our graphic designer is Lauren Gill. Our workshop leaders are Perla Iora, Kaepelie Kalnick, Haley Downs, Jonathan Gonzalez, Rain Grayson, Ray Lipkin, Dara Laurie, Micah, Julie Novak, Blake File, and me, Eva Tenuto. To learn more, support our work, and find a special writing prompt so you can start telling your story, visit tmiproject.org slash podcast. <laughs>